This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin. Today on the Skype on the phone with Lindsay Oliver, who works for Membership Outreach for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and Jordan Bunker, who fabricates props. Uh, Both very cool, interesting jobs that would be great subjects for another Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. But today, uh, they are here in their capacity as engineers and tinkerers and builders uh, who have built BattleBots as well as souped-up power wheels and other cool stuffs. Jordan, Lindsay, welcome to the show. Hi, so happy to be here. Thanks. <laughs> um, that was a very complicated introduction. There is a lot we packed in there. I mean, where where would be easiest to start chronologically? Would it be BattleBots, the power wheels, something before that? What, what, where do you guys think we should start? Uh, probably uh, back at Pumping Station 1 in Chicago, which none of you can see right now, but Jordan has a tattoo of their logo on his arm. It is the hackerspace that he founded back in 2008. Is that right? Uh, Co-founded in 2009 uh, with a a group of 30 other people. It's kind of where the uh, power racing series, the souped up power wheel racing series uh, was born. So what Mm -hmm. is a hackerspace? Oh, Lord. (laughs) That is a complicated question. Um, There's a couple variations. There's Makerspace, Hackerspace, um, Makerspaces, which we tend to be a part of, um, are places where people can go and learn and make things um, from other community members. Um, It's a very community-driven workshop environment. None of the people who go there are professionals necessarily, but have just a deep love of learning and wanting to make things for themselves instead of buying mass-produced products. And that can look like software, that can look like hardware, that can look like uh, crazy knit LEDs into a shawl, Um, just whatever you want to make. And when you open something like that, is that a business or is it more of a community thing or is it somewhere in the middle or something else entirely? Uh, it depends on what you're looking for, really. I mean, there are definitely makerspaces that are businesses uh, for profit. They build, you know, event props for large corporations and just have a communal shop. Um, the one we started was more open in nature. It has no employees. Uh, it's all volunteer run and it's a nonprofit. So the idea being that everybody just wanted a cool place to build stuff in the city and nobody can afford their own shop space. So we all pool their money and kind of rent a space and collect tools and teach each other how to use them. And what were some of the first projects? All right, we got this cool space. Let's make some cool stuff. What were some of the first things that came out of the space? Oh, man, uh, that takes me back. Um, <laughs> so the most memorable one for me is a life-size TARDIS uh, from Doctor Who. It was, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was a DJ booth uh, that we constructed in like a, a week, basically. So we all got together and kind of... Uh, did a bunch of research to figure out how tall this thing was supposed to be. And we built it so it was modular. It could be disassembled and reassembled in different places. Uh, and then eventually it ended up on the roof of the, the hacker space. So, <laughs> Yes, it did. I mean, what 
are the basic building blocks when you're fabricating something like that. Like, I have a decent sense of how putting a computer together works and how digital things work, but I actually have no idea. It's like a TARDIS is like a big metal box. I'm sure, I'm sure you guys did a very nice, very realistic TARDIS. But, like, a TARDIS is about as, it seems like, as simple a construction as you can make. And I have no idea just, like, what even step one would be. Like, what is it, what is it made of? Like, what are the basic tools you use to build that? So ours was built uh, entirely out of wood. Um, and that's not necessarily... And love. The, well, and love, yes, of course. <laughs> important in every project. Uh, but wood is kind of heavy as far as modular things go. If we'd done it again, we probably would have picked something lighter. But uh, the general process for us was we knew going in we wanted it to be modular. Uh, so we kind of designed the overall pieces you kind of look at a TARDIS and you're like okay what what makes up a TARDIS you've got the base we should specify on the very small chance someone listening like it's infinitesimal chance someone has no idea what a TARDIS is it's a big phone booth that Doctor Who travels through time and spaces I can't imagine anyone listening to this podcast doesn't know it but I started to feel bad I'm sorry please continue no totally yeah (laughs) so it's a giant phone booth uh you know police call call box as it were uh uh, so you kind of break it up into its component pieces. You've got four wall or three walls, two doors, uh, and the base and and the the roof. And you kind of how would you go about assembling that? You think about like how you is- assemble IKEA furniture, for example. Uh, I followed the directions, but you had to make your own directions. Exactly right. So we tried to make it as easy as possible. I think we we ended up uh, basically building a base that you could insert four posts into and then you screw the walls on and the doors and then you you uh, raise the roof <laughs> with a group of people and and set it on top so uh you know it's it's not a small task but it sure beats you know taking this 10 foot plus tall thing on the back of a truck uh yeah. <laughs> and and side note, um, that thing did end up on the roof, as you mentioned a little bit earlier. But the funniest part of that story is that um, because it's a warehouse in Chicago that's at, what, 10,000 square feet? The footprint on Google Maps is quite large. So for a while there, there was a TARDIS on the roof of a warehouse on Google Maps. And people were zooming in and being like, what? What is that? <laughs> is that? <gasps> it's just great. <laughs> um, so I want to really focus on like all the cool stuff you guys have made in the shop. Um, and I swear I'm not like a ruthless capitalist, but I guess I am curious, like how does the space like pay for the rent on, you know, a warehouse like that? Like how, how is it a membership fee thing? Exactly. So uh, everybody pays membership dues uh, and there are different tiers for that. So uh, originally I think it was like 50 bucks a month. Every pay, everybody paid the same rate. Uh, and then we kind of noticed that there were a lot of people at universities and, and local high schools that wanted access to the space but couldn't afford that. So we introduced a lower tier membership where they don't get a vote. You know, they don't necessarily have a say in the direction of the space or, you know, how the space spends money. But they they pay a lower membership tier and they still have access to the space. I'm not sure what the, the membership prices are now, but I know that uh, PS1 is doing quite well for itself they have over 500 members i think and about uh what a million in the bank not quite that much but it's getting there but they've got they've got a decent amount of uh, money to play with to buy nice tools and materials and stuff so one of the other cool things that they did as they were growing which jordan and i actually got to take advantage of is um they introduced a membership level for people who couldn't necessarily pay the full amount but wanted to be very involved in the space 
um, and that ended up being the area hosts. And they were responsible for different areas of the shop, um, making sure that we had tools that were functioning correctly, um, getting sourcing sourcing new tools and teaching classes. Mm-hmm. And Jordan ended up being the electronics uh, area host, and I ended up being the textiles host, teaching people to weave and sew and uh, generally make fancy things. And you were in a cave, and Jordan was in a cave of... Uh, Literally a cave of electronics. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a little hole in the wall kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> very troll like. Um. So how far? How long did you guys have the space before you were like, uh, we should start souping up power wheels and racing them around everywhere? Literally a year. <laughs> it was probably less than a year, I think. Uh, so. Uh, looping back to BattleBots, one of our teammates and and my good friend and roommate Jim Burke. Uh, this is all back in Chicago. We, we're in the Bay Area, I should say. Um, so Jim Burke was one of the founding members as well of Pumping Station One. And uh, out back, I think it was, we probably probably had the space about six months. Uh, you know, Power Wheels, there's electric ride-on toys that people buy their kids and then their kids outgrow them. Yeah, the um, Barbie car that goes six miles an hour and, and the battery dies after three hours. Eventually, they just kind of end up in, you know, on the street, abandoned. Uh, so... We found one in the alley behind the warehouse, and uh, it was quickly dragged in, uh, and we threw a car battery in it, uh, like a full-size auto battery. And uh, what are they? You, what are they? What's stock in uh, in a Power Wheels car? Usually, oh, usually it's a little uh, little lead acid battery. So basically, a smaller version of what's in a normal car. Uh, but we, you know, we wanted to ri- drive for a long time and not worry about having to recharge the battery so often it's <laughs> so, so fun it. when you're a kid power wheels is like it seems like the coolest toy they're fairly expensive as far as toys go and it's so funny how obviously it is going to end up in the garbage one day oh yeah <laughs> and the wheels have you ever looked at the wheels they're so bad it's it's basically a uh, vacuum formed plastic over a really rickety it, uh, bo- it, they're not designed to last no. that's for sure so uh you know, we you get enough adults riding these things, and you you come up against limitations, uh, we'll say. And uh, so, we had our first Power Wheels race, I think, in two thousand, end of two thousand nine, something like that. Yeah. Um, it was basically just like we found some guy in the suburbs of Chicago who was collecting all of the abandoned Power Wheels from his neighborhood, and uh, I think we bought like eight of them for a hundred bucks or something like that, and we rented a van and drove out there and picked them all up. And A full-size car. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we rented a, a real van, a, a big people van, and, and uh, yeah, we, we, we took them all back to the space. They all got custom paint jobs. Some of them had the, uh, the uh, plastic reinforced to hold weight you know, an adult's weight. And, uh, we kind of just played around for a day, uh, and had like a, a race as it were. When you first got uh, a power wheels and you first got an, an adult can, a, a standard power wheels cannot bear the weight of an adult. Well, uh, mm, it, a, a normal size one, we're real short. <laughs> it, it can barely. Uh, I mean, your average adult could sit in a power wheel and, you know, hit the gas and, and, and it would move. Um, but, you know, over time, uh, it will start to flex and, uh, <laughs> and eventually it will break. It uh, will protest. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, you reinforce them, you replace the batteries because st- you said six miles an hour. Is that the actual number for how fast the power wheels can go? It might actually be lower. 
Yeah, I, but I, for, for at least for the ones at the time nowadays, the kids ones will go like 15 miles an hour, which I find terrifying. Especially oh, really? Well, yeah, I, I don't know why you would give that to a five year old. But they must. But, I mean, the point is they have like a safety audit, I'm sure. Like, yeah. But yeah. did you guys figure out where that safety was and take it off? Oh, uh, we we went one further. So uh, in the following year, we, we realized that um, this just wasn't going to cut it. Uh, and we wanted to look branch out to other hacker spaces and kind of create an actual series. So this was Jim Burke's grand idea. So he started contacting other spaces and, you know, they found their own power wheels. And uh, we ended up basically, he created a racing series that takes place at every, uh, well, at three of the, the major maker fairs in uh, North America. So. And about 15 of the mini ones or just independent locations across the U.S. And as of this year, the first one is in Australia. Right, uh, UK actually. or in the UK? Yeah. And are people? How fast do the ones at the races go? The so, fastest one goes thirty miles an hour. That's well, pretty fast. Faster yeah, it's than terrifying. That, yeah. I mean, we. I oh, think, oh, right, because they put it on that it, frozen lake. Well, it depends on on which car you're talking about. There's probably been. Well, Jim would know, but uh, there, there's uh, dozens and dozens, if not over a hundred entries at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, and what are the rules? It has does it have to be a Power Wheels car? Is it like a soapbox derby where you can construct your own thing in the spirit of that? It's in the spirit of that. It has yeah. to be Power Wheels shaped and sized. Uh, you know, there's a five hundred dollar limit, um, and that's kind of wishy washy of how much you can spend on your build. So if you get batteries donated, that doesn't count toward the cost, if I remember correctly. But if you custom mill a, a chassis or something and you use more than $500 worth of metal, someone else can say, hey, that looks way more expensive. How much did you spend? And they can buy it off you for $500. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're out of car. Once you um, once you build the car and you soup up the engine and you reinforce it, are there other things you have to adapt to make it raceable? Like a Power Wheels going 30 miles an hour, like those tires can't take those turns, right? You must have to do so, something. Oh, no, yeah. So at this point, people are basically taking the Power Wheel part, just the plastic, removing it, building their own custom go-kart chassis, mm -hmm. and then dropping the Power Wheel shell on top. Yep. So it's really just aesthetic. Uh, and so there's there's basically every real Power Wheel entry at this point. I say real. Every... Um, Let's say uh, every level of skill and uh, customization is represented. So you've got kids from high schools who are just learning about robotics and engineering and and science. Well, I guess not science in, in specific, but engineering in general uh, coming in and they've got an original stock power wheels and they've put a lawnmower battery or lawnmower uh, motor in it. And, you know, they're going 10 miles an hour and just having the time of their lives, but they've learned a lot. And then you've got people like us who um, build a fully customized chassis and, um, you know, very barely escape the races with our lives. It, it ranges from people who just throw something together in a weekend to uh, Tesla engineers who in their uh, spare time decide to... CAD something up and, and have it machined. So it, it really runs the whole gamut of, of engineering and play. Yeah. It's a lovely community. 
uh, listeners, if you guys are near a phone or a computer or whatever, I would highly recommend looking up videos and images of this. Maybe you guys have a place you can recommend doing that because it actually looks like Mario Kart. Like it, when you are in a go-kart, that doesn't look like Mario Kart because go-karts are kind of bigger and you kind of sink into them. But here you have adults who are really like towering over the, and sitting in this car that's way too small for them, like Bowser driving around or something. Um, it's very funny. Is, is there like a video that you uh, people you would recommend people watch of this race that shows it off? Oh, there's so many. Um, yeah, a lot of the racers put their own videos online. Uh, Jim tends to collect them on the Power Racing Series YouTube channel, um, and I believe everything is linked from the website, which is powerracingseries.org. Yes. Dot org. Yes. Um, so go there. You can find out where the nearest race is to where you are, um, and there should be plenty of links to social and YouTube channel. Um, there's one specific video on there. Is is the video of you on fire? No, Ugh. I was not on fire. You were on fire. That's <laughs> not true. He was on fire. Everybody says I was on fire, there but was I think so I would much know. Smoke. That sounds like a real hackerspace <laughs> argument of who, oh, who was this or was is not a, on fire. Th- th- <laughs> yes. For years, they've been telling me I was on fire, and I don't I believe I saw it. the flames. Mm. Saw uh, Lindsay, when was Dustin on fire? <laughs> Jordan. Um, sorry, Jordan was on fire in... Um, I mean, he's always on fire. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I, I believe it was 2011. It was so, the, year, the it was the year that he was driving garbage car. They literally built it out of garbage that they found in alleyways. Him and Josh. What's Josh's last name? Uh, Kruger. Josh Kruger. Yeah. They decided at the last minute, like a week before the opening of the series that year, that they were going to build a car out of literally nothing but what they could find off of the street. They did it. And then they won the race. I was so mad. <laughs> but then, it had a it had a break that was just a sparky plate that you pushed onto the ground. <laughs> there, there were many rules created because of our car. <laughs> oh yeah, that is the goal of every season of Power Wheels. You want to be the reason for the rule change you wish to see in the world. What's a recent rule change that someone imposed with some new innovation? I think the last race I went to, uh, Jim said, if you touch the hay bales, you you owe me five bucks. <laughs> so <laughs> we use hay bale barriers and people were crashing into them a lot. Yeah. It's really it's really just kind of like uh, we try to keep the spirit of racing alive. Uh, yeah. It's it's the other thing I haven't mentioned is that there's race points. So you get points for, you know, placing for second, third. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're standing in, in the actual well, race, but you also get points for moxie. Um, so the the audience gets to vote on who their favorite car is. Oh my so God, all sports should work like this. I love yes. it. Yes. Right? So uh, a lot of people, most cars end up being themed. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got, you know, Steven Universe theme. We've got, you know, people do Mario a lot. Uh, this year there was a cat bus from uh, Studio Ghibli's My Neighbor Totoro. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's fine. My nerd card is showing slightly that's way better than when i called i said doctor i said doctor who travels around instead of saying the doctor i feel like i'm still everyone's still mad at me from that one so <laughs> eh, they can they'll get over it <laughs> does anyone build any gizmos into the car like kind of like james oh, bond style absolutely there is one car that they never seek to win they only seek to entertain and i can never remember their name but they're basically a rolling pina colada stand um <laughs> the, what, what is it it's not hacker tractor it's um are you talking about the the banana car yeah the is it the banana car i can't remember the, what the that might be their official name but i think they just got like there's a, mo- a very silly one they got a mobility scooter and put like a 
Power Wheels made a Hummer one year, and so they this uh, is huge. They have this Hummer body on it, and it's super tall. They have like a steering wheel from a boat or something that they put on it, and it, they just kind of cruise oh, around. Yachts, what friends are for? Oh, that's the other guys who. Oh right, there's more than one boat themed. Yeah, yachts. Power what friends were for. Uh, they have one of those fiberglass boats from like the children's merry-go-rounds that oh, they turned into a Oh, that's so car. good. <laughs> it looks like it walked out of a of, of a Neil Gaiman novel. Um, it's so frightening looking. Um, but the one that I'm thinking of that I cannot think of the name of, they walk around with a mar- they zoom around with a margarita mixer on there, and it goes maybe five miles an hour, and they they just drink. It's and, and and they're basically a rolling uh, chicane. It's mostly about the spectacle. It's you know some people care about race points, but but everybody just has a good time and likes to talk with other people about their cars. Yeah. So. What would you recommend if like I'm a high schooler or a college student and I'm home um, and I op- in my garage I see uh, the Power Wheels that I forgot my family had. Like what are what how and I'm like oh this would be a fun thing to tinker with. Like how would I get started on that? What should I do? Oh man, uh, the first place, honestly, that I would direct kids toward is the Power Wheels um, community groups. Uh, Facebook, yeah. Facebook, and there's a Reddit. Um, uh, there's a subreddit for it, if I remember correctly. It's it's small, but it's very active community. Um, a lot of people will post their build materials and their directions on the groups and help each other out. Um, one of the most lovely things about race day is that. Um, if you break your car and you have to roll it into the pits and fix something, every other team runs down with their welder to help you and mm. give you their spare wheels and make sure you get back on the track because it's just, it's a lovely community and everyone wants to see everyone else have fun and do well. Um, so yeah, I would get in with the community that you can where you are. If there's a local maker fair to you, go and see a race. Um, the big ones that the races are at are um, Maker Fair Detroit, Um Kansas City. Uh, is there a New York one now? New York, There's San Mateo. There's one in New York and San Mateo. San Mateo and Detroit are my two favorites, and I will be at San Mateo. So Is the New York out. one at the New York Maker Fair? Oh, yes. yes. All great. of these are at Maker I'm Fair. I'm just, like, making my own personal plans on this podcast. I'm like, okay, <laughs> <Yes>. great. Um, <laughs> so uh, our our uh, BattleBots teammate will actually be at New York Maker Fair racing, um, Jenna Herkenroder. Uh, she is the Steven Universe-themed car. She dresses as Pearl slash Pink Diamond sometimes. And the children love her, as they should. <laughs> um, what Something we haven't really had a chance to talk about is, like, the course. Like, how long is the actual race, and what is the course like? Oh, it, they do not mess around. It depends on the... So, there's usually two days of racing, mm-hmm. um, because Maker Fair is two days long. And they do a series of different races. So, um... They do like a 15 lap sprint race. Uh, they do a, I think a longer one that's like 30 laps. I, I could be getting this completely wrong. Um, they also do the moxie uh, round, which is people just, they have a skit that they play out and they try to get the crowd to vote for them. Um, but the, the killer oh, they, one. They the- bring in three children as um, from the crowd as the judges. And a lot of the times the racers just will like walk up to the kids and bribe them with, <laughs> with candy or money sometimes. <laughs> Um, the-, the, the killer race is the endurance race, which is the last race and it's 75 minutes long. So Ooh, it's 90 now. Well, they might roll they- it back to, Oh really? Yeah. There were some complaints about that. Uh, so 75 <laughs> minutes of racing. And so cars break, every car seems to break at least once during that race. And, uh, you know, so there, 
people frantically in the pits, you know, welding wheels back onto axles, trying to get them back in, out on the track. So, why do you guys think I? You know, I went go karting recently, and I was thinking this when I was go karting. Go karting is fun, and I'm sure this is the most fun thing in the world to drive around, even more so than go karting. But driving a car is boring. Why is it more fun? Like, I'm an adult, so I can drive a car when I want, and that's boring. Like, what makes driving around in, like, a tiny little car that goes slower than an actual car uh, so much fun? I I think the limitation is built into the vehicle. Like, in yeah. a car, you could go 110 miles an hour if you wanted to risk your life. But there's that element of danger isn't quite there in, in you know, go-karting. Uh, you can slam that pedal down and and max it out, and you're having fun. Uh, it's also a lot more responsive. You feel like you know there's obvious competition, and some people drive that way on you know a normal road, but uh, most of us don't. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just a I think a a way to reinterpret the driving experience. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of actual visceral um, feeling when you're racing. You are really close to the road. You can feel the wind. Um, even though you're only going, you know, maybe 20 miles an hour, uh, it feels like you're going a bajillion miles an hour because, <laughs> because you're so low to the ground and there's people zooming past you and ramming into you from behind and you've run into a hay bale. So there's hay in your face and in your hair uh, and you your battery goes out. You can smell it like everybody else's batteries and their tires explode like it is all in your face and you have to have your wits about you the entire time. It's hilarious watching the races from the sideline because it looks so much more serene than when you're actually driving in it. It's uh, it's quite the experience. I will say that it's there's also the added element of uh, trusting your life to something you built yourself uh, <laughs> in the Power Racing series. So, you know, you, you are cute, acutely aware of, of all of the flaws and all of the, uh, I don't know if that's going to work for very long sort of parts that you built. So <laughs> that makes it fun and terrifying but those two go hand in hand with most hackerspace projects it's interesting the further you get into the race and the more things break the less you care about how pretty it looks or how well it might hold together you're like yeah that's a weld i guess sure is it together make it go a lap so you started the power reels races about a year after you opened the space when did you open the space how long ago was that so pumping station one was founded in 2009 um, and we were meeting in a coffee shop at that point. Um, and that was basically to legally exist as an entity so that we could rent a space, which happened later in the year in 2009. But when did the BattleBots come along? How far, how long ago was that? So BattleBots is brand new as of this year for us. Um, we, I mean, as kids, of course, we watched it and loved it. Um, was but- that show, like, that show seems ahead of its time, whereas now um, there is there is this community of, like, makers and maker spaces and all that stuff mm-hmm. is out there um, and these maker fairs. But at the time, like, I, I remember seeing, yeah, I remember seeing that show as a kid and, like, I don't know that that was, I don't know that that community existed or did it and I just wasn't as aware of it. I think it. I think Combat Robotics as as a community has existed for a long time, and BattleBots used to be very different than it is now. I think BattleBots kind of started out as just a. It had multiple weight classes that you could compete in, and uh, they decided to uh, 
televise it. Um, and so that community and, existed, and then someone discovered it and said, we should make a TV show out of it. They didn't have the idea for the TV show and then find people to make robots. Uh, right. I, that's my understanding. Right, right. As, as, far uh, as, you, as far as you guys know. I appreciate uh, you didn't produce BattleBots for Comedy Central in the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, now now it's mostly, it's just the heavyweight uh, weight class. It's 250-pound robots smashing into each other. Uh, and... Uh, it, the, it's basically just a TV show now. So there are other events that happen around the world, uh, for combat robotics, but, uh, King of bots in China, King of bots, uh, there's Motorama, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a whole whole bunch of them. So maybe we should describe battle bots for those who aren't familiar. I mean, it was a show, it it was on comedy central in the two thousands. So I think it's on like ABC and other channels now. What is it on right now? It's on Discovery now. Perfect. As a, this is the makes first a lot year. actually makes a lot more sense than being on Comedy Central, and um, yeah. <laughs> it's a show where I mean people construct uh, sort of homemade robots, right? Like they're sort of um, kind of like the Power Wheels you were describing. I think they're clearly like passion. They're not like mass produced products. People kind of craft these and then they uh, I don't know put them in an arena and they fight, right? Yeah, it it tends to run the gamut there too. There there's people who made them at home in their garages, and then there's people who have been doing this since the very first BattleBots back in the '90s, I believe. Yeah, there's there's some hundred thousand dollar robots out there. I mean, yeah. and then there's you know some five thousand dollar robots, but they all compete in the same arena. So, yeah. Yeah. Boy, I mean, I feel like that show must have... I, I bet if you asked everyone who was a member of PS1, a high percentage of them were into BattleBots when it was on. Like, that, that show oh, yeah. must have been, like, a really big spotlight for that community at that time, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a member of most hackerspaces that haven't heard of BattleBots before. We're all kind of, you know, geeky and, and keyed into robots in general in pop culture. So BattleBots was this kind of unique... Uh, very unique show, especially at that time. Yeah, what um, do you remember about it from your youth? Oh, man. So, uh, my favorite robots were what were called, I think, art bots, if you want to call it that. They weren't necessarily always competitive, but they were really unique and, and interesting. So, my favorite bot builder was Mark Satrakian, who would build these ridiculous, uh, terrifying robots that were... Uh, ornate and you know moved like no other robots um but weren't necessarily always very competitive um now it seems like a lot of the robots fall into very particular classes uh so you have horizontal bar spinners and uh you know vertical spinners and and shell spinners uh vertical drum spinners um it's it all comes down to what your major weapon is and your method of attack and they all have pros and cons and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh so I'm, yeah kind of my recollection of the original BattleBot, as someone who watched it but you know was not inspired to start souping up power wheels as, as i grew older um but i did watch BattleBots, and like i kind of remember that someone built a wedge and it was just like a wet and it was relatively simple and not flashy <laughs> and it just wrecked everyone and it almost like someone just like kind of broke the game like they figured out a, a simple design that was uh difficult to beat is am i is that at all correct? Am I remembering that correctly? So much like the hackerspace argument of was Jordan on fire, wedges are also the uh, the third rail of the bot community. Oh my God, I love it. So wedges, <laughs> controversial be- because of these reasons I'm describing? Yeah, uh, they're, they're just, it's very easy to 
run something into a wall and that doesn't take a great deal of, of engineering skill. Well, I mean, it it takes a great deal of engineering skill to build any kind of robot that lasts this against any sort of weapon. But the wedge is just kind of like the, it is really the most effective, you know, uh, weapon there is. It's very simple. Um, it's hard to break. Right. Um, and the other things have more moving parts. So like if you, they have weak points, whereas the wedge is like, is just a big box. Right. So uh, I think because of that, it's, it's almost, you know, frowned. If you, if you brought a wedge to BattleBots, I don't think they'd let you in. But um, I think the the producers oh. have there there if you look at a lot of the bots out there they have wedge like aspects but you cannot have a a, a wedge primary weapon uh, you have to have some other weapon so you'll see a lot of bots that you know have wedges on the front that feed into you know their their blade or their their drum spinner but uh, which is smart yeah I mean that that counts um, th- there have been some teams that have been criticized for having a wedge with, you know, a, a feeble attempt at a quote-unquote primary weapon uh, that promptly breaks, and then they just become a wedge. Uh, so it's, so there are actually rules now that if your primary weapon is broken, um, you have 30 seconds to be able to use it again, or you're out. Um, I should know the rules, but I don't, yeah. Uh, that was a whirlwind. <laughs> I, I don't remember sleeping at all <laughs> during battle box that yeah. was a lot is there a way is there a rule that legislates that like your bot your bot has to be you know this amount of interesting like how do you how do you legislate specifically in a rule against wedges and other kind of simple designs so because uh battle bots is now put on by a production company it's not you know the original competition that it was they they have to basically sign off on your robot so uh, you apply to be in BattleBots, and then they say, yes, this is what we want. We want more of, you know, cheeseburger robots, uh, stuff like that. Uh, and and uh, so they kind of hold the ultimate veto uh, powers of, of which bots get in. And they're, just, and they're trying to make it, you know, X amount of interesting. Yeah, I mean, they, they want some... I mean, they're in the business of making TV shows. It's in their... Yeah. You know, the financial interests and, and the interests of just the BattleBots community that it stay interesting. So. Yeah, it needs to be uh, to 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 make money in order for it to keep existing. So it's like part entertainment, part competition, all fun. And how did you guys get involved and end up spending many sleepless nights on building a bot? Oh, Lord. Uh, so we, <laughs> we are friends with uh, two people who are in the robotics world, Jen Herkenroder and Miles Piccala. Uh, Jen is master fabricator, awesome racer, um, and has built a, a few robots herself. Um, and then Miles is a roboticist. He um, actually worked on Megabots. Um, if you'll recall the, the, gi- the giant mech that went to Japan to fight Japan's mech, which I am forgetting the name of at this moment, but you can look it up online. Um, so they, they were actually a part of the power racing series as well. They, they are from Baltimore, mm-hmm. uh, Baltimore hackerspace, um, Baltimore burners, uh, Baltimore burners is their team name, team mm-hmm. name in, in uh, power racing series. So that's kind of how we knew them. And, uh, they recently moved out to the Bay Area, uh, or they had recently moved out to the Bay Area, and were thinking about entering BattleBots. And uh, they came over, and Miles kind of pitched some ideas for robots at us, and 
asked if we wanted to be involved and uh, said, absolutely. I mean, it's a childhood dream, right? And then, I mean, what does it, so what is entailed? I guess how much time do you have to build it? And then like, do you, are there scrimmages? Like, okay, we're building a battle bot. What, what are the scenes in the montage that follows? Oh man. So uh, this year was really difficult because we, from, so a lot of the, let me start by saying a lot of the teams that enter BattleBots have done it before and they bring the same robot the next year. Some for decades. Just, yeah, right. So uh, it's, for us being a new team, the time between uh, it's time to apply for BattleBots and it's time to be at BattleBots was six weeks. Uh, so we got our application in. Uh, and then we received, you know, approval of our of our idea and uh, our robot. And then we had five weeks to basically design and fabricate the robot. Um, and we all have full time jobs, right? So uh, <laughs> it was a, a mad dash. Uh, you know, you Miles is furiously pumping out CAD files, uh, and Jen is cutting tubing and bending it. And uh, you know, I'm making fixtures. Uh, for welding everything together. And Lindsay is trying desperately to manage all of the chaos as, to help us make sure that we hit our targets. So it's it's uh, it's a lot of really late nights. I I don't remember sleeping more than four, four or five hours a night for that entire month. And at the end of the month, or at the end of the five weeks, it's not like you're done and then you send the robot to the competition and then you get a break. Literally... We welded the last piece on at four in the morning and got in the car and drove to Los Angeles and we were in the arena the next day. <laughs> and then it was two straight weeks of shooting. And you took one of those power wheels there, so it took a long time to get there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It took like three days. Yeah. <laughs> what was, you kind of alluded to it a little already, but what was uh, the design you submitted that you guys ended up building? Uh, I, I will credit Jordan with the name of the robot. The Battle Royale with Cheese is a cheeseburger robot with a spinning bacon blade. Um, and it has a little companion bot named Shorter Pounder, also named by Jordan, that shoots fire. Companion <laughs> bots is not something that existed uh, in the old version of the show, as I can recall. It's like a little helper bot. It's like a second robot that's a uh, second person, I guess, is controlling. Yes, exactly. So if the that's little guy allowed? gets... Yep, yep. It's allowed so long as the sum total of your robots uh, are 250 pounds or less. Yeah. Uh, there were some multi-bots this year, like the Four Horsemen, uh, that they had four roughly equally sized robots. So mm -hmm. you're allowed with to a different weapon. Yeah. You're allowed to have different, you know, multiple robots now. So did you guys have the idea for what I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was a horizontal spinner primary weapon robot, uh, first or the idea that you should do a cheeseburger first, the cheeseburger, cheeseburger first. first. Yeah. That's so funny. We, we are nothing if not full of dignity. <laughs> why, My why a cheeseburger? Why did you, it's, I mean, I guess if you think it seems like a stable shape, I guess just why, why a hamburger? You know, how did you decide to make a hamburger robot? That's a question I have dreamed of asking on this podcast for a long time. <laughs> the opportunity. Um, we wanted to make something ridiculous, um, partly because a lot of the other robots, while awesome and really cool and amazingly engineered and um, tended to be silver and square and sort of angry looking. And we wanted 
an adorable, ridiculous thing to stick in the arena because if you... if someone, you know, kicks the crap out of us and we're broken, like, yeah, you, you, you beat up a cheeseburger, good for you. Uh, but then if, if, if we win, it's like, haha, a cheeseburger beat you. Um, but we just wanted to bring a, a little joy and silliness um, and, and have it be something that kids would enjoy um, and get them interested in science and building. We, we wanted to bring a cheeseburger to a robot fight. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I think we generally feel like uh, people take BattleBots very seriously. M- not all people, but many people do. And it's not that we didn't. It's that we wanted to bring a little more lighthearted uh, entertainment to mm-hmm. to the robot fights. <laughs> do you think any of that is maybe influenced by the fact that you participated in these races where race points were only half the battle? And you know, uh, what were the what were the non race points called? The show off, you know, the style moxie. points, the moxie points, the moxie yeah. points. That's absolutely, I think you know, uh, it influenced our, our decision. Miles basically showed up with a, a list of robots and none of them, uh, you know, were tombstone or, or anything like it. They were all ridiculous ideas. And we, we picked the one that we thought we could execute within the, the time frame in the budget. So also just burger. <laughs> and also it's a cheeseburger. I mean, who doesn't love a cheeseburger? Were you guys aware? Were you thinking like, oh, this will be weak to a certain type of robot or this will be strong as a certain type of robot? Or are you just like, we got to get this thing built and working? I mean, we were aware of that, but uh, it didn't stop us. You know, we, we, we knew who we were strong against and who we were weak against. Uh, but ultimately, we just wanted to have a cheeseburger robot. <laughs> <laughs> what was the hardest part? You know, what was there anything... Uh, I mean, I imagine going in, there's some things you know are going to be difficult, but are there any challenges that, like, came up that you just weren't anticipating? Ooh, uh, sending things away for fabrication on such a short timeline. Uh, We ended up, thank God, finding um, a really amazing um, fabricator in Chicago who spent his own time outside of work... um, He's actually a a friend of mine from Pumping Station 1. Yeah, Uh, Jacob Klimusko, right? Uh, so yeah, Jacob, basically I told him, Hey, is your, uh, is your business interested in sponsoring our battle bot? And he was like, you're doing battle bots. Let me talk to my boss. Uh, he spent a bunch of his own personal time fabricating the, the buns for the robot and mm-hmm. they look fantastic. So advanced metal crafters out of Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, they, they supplied those to us and that was, yes, <laughs> they were instrumental in the buns of steel. They saved our buns. Is there any opportunity to, like, scrimmage with a battle bot? Like, do you get to test it at all, or do you just show up and, you know, hope you do well? They do not uh, allow you to scrimmage outside of the battle box. You are allowed to take your robot into the test box to make sure that the weapon is working correctly, that you are able to move around on the exact same kind of terrain that is in the battle box, which is sort of a spongy, rubbery... It's like a rubber-coated metal floor. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, Tombstone is able to gouge it apart, but not many others. And what was your experience like on shooting day? What happened? Shooting days. uh, So it's two straight weeks of filming every single... Well, there's a couple days where they're not filming fights, but they they film you in the pit. Um, So it's two straight weeks. um, What are they filming? Are you just pretending to fight in the pit or is it like B-roll? no uh b-roll um and you guys building the thing and yeah building it. frantically fixing things um and uh you know 
just being silly and ridiculous and them doing like interviews and 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 photos for the website and that they're filming at all times. Um, it, it's very much like being in a reality show when you're in the pits, except you don't have time to care that the camera is there because you need to get the wheels back on. It's, it's, it's a hectic schedule to say the least. Yes. Um, the, I will say our, our first fight. So basically you arrive and you, you are there with, you know, 50 other teams, uh, of robot builders and you're all kind of setting up your pits and you're taking your robot apart and putting it back together over and over and over again. Uh, that's the primary task is repairing your robot by taking it apart and putting it back together. Uh, so you get really good at it by the end of the two weeks. Um, you also but, lose track of what time means. <laughs> so, so you're kind of there working with everybody, uh, you know, on each other's robots too. Um, and then, you know, the producers come out and tell you, here's the fight lineup. Uh, and you kind of like, oh, yeah, we're fighting Tantrum next. I know Aaron. Let's go see what Aaron's up to. You swing by the pits and Aaron will come by your pits and you kind of size up the competition. So he saw we brought a burger and he made a spatula for Tantrum. <laughs> you know, <laughs> stuff like that happens. And yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, Hanging out with the other teams is one of the best parts of the competition. Um, when you find out who you're going to be fighting, a lot of times the teams will make a custom little like prop that goes on their robot that is related in some way to the person that they're fighting. So for our first fight, Tantrum added a little spatula onto the end of its flipper weapon um, because we're a burger and we needed to be flipped. Uh, and then for our second fight, which was with Hypershock, um, they have an ongoing sort of like silly meme thing that they do where they have a rake um because one year they fought a drone um they, they fought a robot that had a little like companion drone, drone companion. that was yeah. flying around and so they taped they like, just welded or taped on this this rake to their robot and like tried to knock the drone out of the air it succeeded and yes. they succeeded so we uh we brought a little rake to to the fight as 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 tribute and uh, taped it to our little shorter pounder guy. How how did the bop perform? Like, did it work as well as you expected? What what happened? So uh, there were some disappointments. Um, basically, because of the timeline, you know, you don't really get enough time to test everything that you want to test. Um, and you also have to have the facilities. You know, if you you have an eighty pound blade spinning at two hundred and some miles an hour, you don't want to do that in your garage, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we didn't really have a place to do that safely. So we tested on site. Uh, so we we discovered several issues that needed to be fixed on site. Um, we did we didn't win our first two fights. Mm -hmm. uh, we we lasted three minutes in the first one, which was a huge win in our eyes. Uh, but, you know, it was back to the drawing board, basically, after that fight. Um, we had our, our torque limiter for our weapon fail, which meant that we couldn't spin it up uh, to full speed. Uh, and so we rectified that. But then you go into the second fight, and our motor controller blew up for driving our, our main weapon. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's one thing after another. And what makes teams successful is not always having the best, like, perform not always having the most powerful robot, it's having the robot that is, uh, has all the kinks worked out. Um, and so you have to really do this a lot and, and focus on working through all of the design, uh, difficulties uh, with these robots. And, you know, I think now we could say what we did wrong, uh, and fix it and bring a much, much stronger robot next year. 
Absolutely. What would you change next year without giving anything away to the other teams? Oh, man. Uh, hmm. Give us a second. Let's think about that one. The first thing I would change. Uh, so our drive system for the weapon uh, was basically a fifth scale RC hobby motor uh, that was run through the guts of a DeWalt angle grinder, uh, then went to a torque limiter that our sprocket sat on. And that uh, turned a chain that turned the main sprocket on our, our bacon blade. Um, the traditional way of doing horizontal bar spinners, or the good way in my eyes, is by using a V-belt setup. So rubber V-belts rather than chain. Uh, if we had done that, then we could eliminate the torque limiter altogether. Um, and that would have made, that would have erased the whole first issue, honestly. I think the thing that would also erase a lot of the other issues that I would change next year is to not have the batteries only be accessible if the robot is taken apart. Yeah, that was kind of tricky. You want to protect everything with armor, right? Uh, That's good. I absolutely think we should do that again. We should absolutely have the battery inside the armor. I'm for that. Definitely not disagreeing with you there. (laughs) But I would like it to be a little bit more accessible next year. So uh, the difficulty for us, I think, in taking apart our robot, we had about 100 screws that had to be removed each time. Recessed. Um, And they were recessed screws in the armor. And, you know, if you fight somebody in the the battle box, uh, some of those screws are going to end up damaged. And removing those screws is really difficult (laughs) if they've been damaged. How many bits did we break? So uh, (laughs) in order to get access to any of the innards of our robot, we had to sit for about, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, uh, taking the armor off first. There's no, there were no easy access panels uh, for us to access the necessary stuff. So that does mean we had the safest battery in the game. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting hearing you guys talk about it uh, because obviously it was a ton of work to put together. Um, You said there were some disappointments there. Um, but it also sounds like you're excited about, you're still excited about it. And I mean, it's clear from your voice yet. You, you guys had a great time doing it. Would you do it again? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I Are mean, you going like, to do it again? I, I will have to talk to the team. I mean, I think everybody's on board. Oh, yeah. uh, it, it's asking a lot for someone to, to sign up for that, uh, level of build again. I think we'd have an easier time now because we've worked together now and, and, I don't think it would be a frantic five-week build again. Uh, I think it would just be refining what exists. So, um, yeah, I think we're open to the idea. Uh, We might bring a whole different robot. Who knows? Yeah. I want to spend, if you guys have just a few more minutes, I would love Mm -hmm. to hear just like two minutes, or just a few minutes with each of you, just about your individual things, because they're both very interesting. Um, You know, Lindsay, maybe start with you. You work for the EFF, which we've talked about a lot on the show. It's a great organization um, fighting for people's digital rights. And you said you were at DEF CON this weekend. I guess I'm wondering just like what's new with the EFF? What should we be aware about there? What's the new thing we should be excited about for the EFF? Well, I'm not sure if I would say excited about, but... um, Well, what's the new thing we should be be worked up about maybe? Oh, net neutrality. Get on that. Um, So there, (laughs) I'm pretty sure everyone's very well aware of all of the stuff that's been going on at the federal level. Um, But what is not always as well known is that there are a lot of efforts happening at the local level to make sure that net neutrality is... Uh, is enforced sort of mostly at the state level. So there's a ton of, of legislation that's working its way through um, local uh, 
local legislature, um, take a look uh, on our website. There are a bunch of tools there to help you get involved and make sure that you are aware of the laws that are being made in your in your municipalities. Um, so yeah, take a look there, see what's going on, see what you can connect to. Um, one of the things that I'm really excited about at the EFF right now is our growing EFA network, which is the Electronic Frontiers Alliance, which is a network of grassroots activists across the country fighting for the internet and keeping it safe and secure and open to all, um, which is something that you can find at EFF.org slash EFA. Um, They're doing amazing work. Yes, I love it. Um, We did a whole episode about the EFF, um, and I encourage you guys to go back in the feed and find it and support them. Thank you for the amazing work you did. Jordan, I want to talk about the amazing work you do. What are what are you, what are you building? What's like a new prop you've been working on? Uh, so currently, I'm fully employed at a company called Palace Games in San Francisco, uh, out of the Palace of Fine Arts. Uh, we build escape rooms, and so we've got three rooms there, and we're currently working on our fourth, soon to be working on our fifth. Uh, the thing I've been working on recently is these giant animatronic eyeballs that are about 16 inches tall. Uh, will look down on you from uh, some of the elements in the room. So, uh, basically just doing a lot of animatronic stuff. Um, let's see what else. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do is, is, you know, working on old cars and building furniture and other hobby stuff. So not necessarily anything in particular to, to share with the general audience, but, uh, if you need, if you need a custom prop, let him know. Yeah. Say oh. a, ha- a hamburger robot of some kind. Yes. This is a potential thing that can be made. Yeah. At your wish, at your discretion. I do have one other thing I should have mentioned for the EFF, um, because it is the thing that I am most proud of, is that last year we released a full curriculum called the Security Education Companion uh, that is a companion to SSD, Surveillance Self-Defense. It is a curriculum that is super accessible. Um, It is a curriculum that addresses two different audiences really well, one of which is security researchers who know a lot about their craft but don't know a lot about teaching, and then people who are really good at teaching or activism but don't know a lot about security. And it comes at these concepts in a really amazing way to help people teach their friends and neighbors how to be safe online. It's cool. Um, it's fu- it's, I want to ask you guys, um, I feel like it's going to be the same answer you gave me before. If someone's interested in this stuff, um, actually, I guess be it um, hacker spaces or power wheels or um, battle bots or even the EFF, it seems like it's how to get into it. It's, it's, it's going to be a similar answer, which is find those communities online and get involved. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely, anytime you're interested in anything, anything, learning anything, just <laughs> see if there's a community near you online. I mean, and, and go to meetups and, and talk to people. It's the fastest way to get into that uh, that field of knowledge and, and talk to people who know what they're doing or who also want to know uh, more about what you want to learn. So, And let's also be real. A lot of listeners might be in rural areas and not have access to those communities and those resources in person, but the internet is your friend. If you want to learn something, if you want to do something, do not be discouraged by how difficult or crazy or technical that it looks. Go and do it. Like fail, fail better, fail harder, and learn. Very cool. Uh, well, Lindsay Jordan, 
amazing projects. I love what you guys are building. Um, keep us posted. I want to know more BattleBot stuff. I, I want to know when you guys are going back to the battle arena, the battle box. <laughs> uh, and thanks so much for making time talking about uh, all this fun stuff tonight. Awesome. Thank you so much for having us. It was awesome. Just thank you. That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>